If y'all have a Bible, you can turn to John 6. Uh, one thing I was thinking about, uh, thankful for, I'll say this just because they're, um, they're in the room uh, right now. Uh, one of the things I felt like the Lord wanted us as a church and me uh, specifically to focus on this year was multiplication. Didn't really know what that meant, but that's something that we've been praying about and just kind of saying, God, what, what are you doing here? And thankful for Russell. You can raise your hand. And Megan, his wife, was here singing. They've... Uh, in February, they moved into the Dwell Apartment Community on Franklin Road, and they've been planting a church there. And for David Scott and his wife Jane and their leadership team, as they're preparing to launch a new church called Highlands, as well, two expressions of multiplication. Really thankful uh, for them, just those two expressions this year. And there are others. Those were just two I was thinking of because uh, they were sitting right here uh, by me. So thankful for y'all and your obedience to the Lord and for all of y'all uh, for being willing to be a part of a church uh, that doesn't just want to be one thing bigger, uh, but to try to be more than one thing. That's not necessarily easy, and I appreciate, appreciate all of y'all and your willingness to commit to that vision and strategy. All right, John 6. So we've been in John 6 for a while. This close up, it's, it's one episode or one unit of thought. It's two different scenes. It, it begins, Jesus is at this town called Bethsaida, and he feeds about 12,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and the people want to make him the king by force because he's fed them. And so he withdraws to a mountain, and he sends his disciples on a boat, and they cross that Sea of Galilee. In the middle of the night, the disciples are struggling, and Jesus walks on water, and he meets them in the middle of the lake, and he gets in their boat, and immediately they're in Capernaum, which is where the second scene takes place. In that first scene, if it's, if it's a sign, Jesus feeding these 5,000 men, 12,000 people. The second scene is more of a, it's a teaching. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum the day after he's fed all of these people. And there's a, we'll call it a conversation. There's this dialogue between him and the crowd. It's not all 12,000 people, but it's some portion of people who had seen Jesus feed. It had probably been fed themselves, have followed him to Capernaum. They wake up the next morning, they're hungry, they're looking for breakfast, they try to find Jesus, and they get in their boats, and they sail across to Capernaum, and they find him, and there's this dialogue between Jesus and them, and he's saying, you worked really hard to find me for breakfast. You went, you searched for me in Bethsaida, and you got in your boats, and you sailed across to Capernaum, and you found me here. Why, why don't you work for food that doesn't spoil? Why don't you work for food that produces eternal life, not just food that's going to keep you full for a few hours. And the key idea in this teaching is verse 29, Jesus says, this is the work of God to believe in me, to believe in the one that the father has sent. And that's Jesus. And then he tries to get them to understand what he's saying. And he's using this picture from the day before, this sign of the bread. And he's talking about eating the bread. And he's saying, I'm the, I'm the bread. I'm the one who's come down from heaven. And I'm this spiritual bread. And if you'll eat me and if we were talking, we would do air quotes. He doesn't do that, and they don't understand, and they think he's speaking literally, and they get highly offended. And you can, it, it, what he's trying to say to them is you, you just need to believe. You need to trust me. And you, we can see over the course of just 24 hours, the crowd, their opinions really shift dramatically. And verse 14, at, when their stomachs are full, they're ready to make Jesus king. And then the next day, when Jesus is talking about God continuing to give them bread from heaven, they say, we want that 
bread. They're very open to what Jesus is saying. But then when he says, I'm the bread, they start to grumble. And they say, you're, you're, you're not bread from heaven. You're Jesus from Nazareth. You're 20 mile, you came from 20 miles down the road. And then when he says, well, you, you gotta, th- th- this bread is my flesh and you've got to eat it, then they start to argue sharply among themselves. And so to me, the scene is chaotic. It would be if, if we were in here and, and Jesus was talking, he was saying these things that were offensive and that were difficult to understand, and people are arguing among themselves about what Jesus is saying, and I think they're probably arguing with Jesus about what he's saying. And then chapter 6 closes with Jesus focusing in on his disciples, not just the 12, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Judah, not just those 12. It's a broader group. We don't know who all's in it. But these are people who are following Jesus, and, and this scene closes with Jesus in his conversation with them. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 61. No, verse 60. On hearing it, so on hearing this teaching, that people have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to receive life, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, that's the same way the crowds were acting, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life. Yet there's some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed Jesus. So in this chaotic scene, some of Jesus' followers begin to grumble about what he's saying as well. And he says, are you offended? Is this a stumbling block? It's a, it's a key word, that word offended. Is this, is this, cause, is this gonna cause you to abandon me? Is this going, uh, that word offend means uh, to cause someone to abandon or desert a person whom they should trust. That's what it means. It's a very strong word. Is, is that, what, am I, are you going to walk away from me because of what I've said, Jesus says to them. And, and they're going, this is, this is hard. This is difficult. This is hard for us to accept. And Jesus says, well, it's going to get worse. You're going to see me as, what are you going to do if you see me ascend to heaven? And we think, well, what's offensive about that? But we know now from the end of the story that the only way Jesus ascends to heaven is for him to first be crucified. And that's highly offensive to a Jew to think of the Messiah as a crucified one. Paul actually uses this same word and he says, the cross, Jesus crucified is offensive. It's a stumbling block to Jews. If the Messiah is the one chosen by God, but cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree, how do I put those two things together that the one sent by God is also cursed by God? That's a stumbling block for a Jew to believing that Jesus is the one sent by God. And he's saying this, what I'm telling you about my flesh and my blood, that's kind of nothing compared to what you're going to see at the end of my life. In order to see me ascend, that means I've already died and that for all of them, would become a stumbling block. They'd all desert him at that moment. And, 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 and he's saying to them, the, the words, what I've been trying to tell you, they're, they're, the, the, the Spirit's the one who produces life. Your flesh doesn't count for anything. And we, we know that. I think the context there is 
believing in Jesus versus following the rules. The work of God is to believe in the one that he sent. And as a Jewish person, they would have been waiting on Jesus to say the works of God or here's the list of rules that you need to follow. And he's saying that that doesn't help. The Holy Spirit's the one who produces life and he produces life by trusting in me. And that's what I've been trying to tell you during this time. But some of you followers of mine don't believe, which I find that's, that's interesting to me. People who are following Jesus are not trusting in Jesus. And I, that's hard for me to get my mind around, but Jesus says that's true. There's some of you who've been following me and you don't believe. You're not trusting in me. And maybe it was something where they have been trusting in him and, and now they've stopped trusting in him. And, and some of them actually, many of them, desert him in that moment. They, they turn around and they leave him. We've seen this huge momentum swing in 24 hours. Jesus goes from this massive crowd, biggest crowd we ever see him ministering to, 5,000 men, probably easily 12,000 people, and they want to make him king. And now even many of his followers are leaving him, are turning around and walking away from him just in 24 hours, that huge shift. And I think one of the things Jesus wants to say to his disciples is it's okay. None of this stuff caught me by surprise. It's the reason I told you that nobody can come unless the Father enables them to come or the Father gives them. That's the word. The Father grants them to come to me. We talked about this a little bit last week, the process of salvation that Nobody comes to Jesus unless they're drawn by the Father. The Father draws people by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does that work. He's, he's wooing people. He's convicting people of sin and guilt and righteousness. He's opening people's eyes to the truth and their need for a Savior. And so then we say, well, then does everybody become a Christian? We know the answer is no. So it's either, well, God only draws a few people or he draws everyone and some people resist his drawing. And you can be in either one of those camps. I'm in the second, not in the first. I believe God draws everyone. And yet people can resist his drawing. And Jesus is saying, I, I knew that would happen. It's okay. I was aware of that. I didn't allow them to make me the king. I withdrew to a mountain. I knew that wasn't, that wasn't the road that the Father had for me. And I'm not shocked that people are abandoning me now. I knew that would happen as well. You know, again, I, I, my conviction is that God so loved the world that he gave his son. My conviction is that God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's John three sixteen and 17. My conviction is 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For that John 1, 9, that the true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. So I believe God loves the whole world and is drawing the whole world to himself. And I believe there are people who resist and there are people who resist initially and they never make a decision to follow Jesus. And we see here people who are following him and then who abandon him along the way. And again, for me, that's not an, that's not an issue. I see salvation as reconciled relationship. And just like relationships can be reconciled, they can be broken. Jesus never leaves us, he says, and Jesus never loses us, he says. I lose none that the Father gives me. But this is not a case of Jesus leaving or losing. This is a case of people turning and walking away from him. People who I would say were genuinely following him. The word is disciple. 
It means followers. So what I see here is there were people who were legitimately following Jesus to some degree, and then he says something that's offensive to them. It's a stumbling block to them. And rather than wrestling through that stumbling block or rather than submitting to that word, they choose to break relationship with Jesus. They literally turn their back on him. They abandon him. They desert him. They walk away. Again, for some people, they, they, would, they would understand that in a different way, and that's okay. You certainly don't have to agree with me. But that's the way I understand what's happening there. We see the God is drawing. People are resisting. Some people are saying yes, and they're following. And then even from that group, there are people who choose to abandon. They don't continue to follow Jesus. And then it gets even more personal. Jesus looks at his closest friends you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Now, we haven't seen in John any indication that Jesus has 12 disciples. We know that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the first time they're mentioned in John, and we don't get any list in John of who those people are. It's just, this, it's just called the 12. It's these 12 men that Jesus has chosen to be his closest companions. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. So even among Jesus' inner circle, there's someone who would betray him. We know that's Judas. He's a devil, someone who's aligned himself with Satan and his agenda. You remember uh, in, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He's saying it's a, it's a similar way of using that word. You're, you've aligned yourself with the agenda of the enemy. Judas has done that. So we see even with Jesus' inner group of 12, there's one who would betray. And again, I think he's saying it's okay. I knew that was going to happen as well. What I see here is I see the, the, the interaction between father and son. Again, you can disagree with me on this. I believe when Jesus became a baby that first Christmas, he gave up the omnis. He was no longer omnipresent. He had a body. He wasn't everywhere at one time. He gave up omnipotence. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He could be hurt. He could be killed. He gave up omniscience. Luke says he grew in wisdom. You have to grow in wisdom if you already know everything. I believe, so what I, what I think is happening here is the father is revealing information to the son because of their closeness of relationship, because of their intimacy. The father is letting Jesus know, here's some things that are going to be happening. And I think Jesus is letting his disciples know, it's okay. I, I, I've got this. We had a huge crowd yesterday. Today, we've got a much smaller crowd. And even among the smaller crowd, one of y'all is going to betray me, but I, I, it's okay. None of this stuff is catching me by surprise. None of this stuff is catching God by surprise. We don't have time to, to dive into it. We talked about this before, the idea that just because God knows what's going to happen in the future doesn't mean God causes that. Did Judas have a choice? I believe he did. I don't believe God determined that Judas would betray Jesus. He forced Judas to betray Jesus. I think that was a decision that Judas made, and he's 100% responsible for that decision. I think Jesus knew Judas was going to betray. I don't know at what point he did know. He knew at this point. 
It's amazing to me that on the night that Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus washes Judas' feet. It's phenomenal to me to see the depth of love and the, the pursuit to the end of Judas uh, that, uh, that Jesus has towards Judas. I think that's a picture of his desire to see everybody reconciled to him. So I think he knew, but he didn't give up. And I don't know how to reconcile those things in my mind, but I think it's true. I was reading this, and two things that jumped out at me as we close chapter 6. And next week, we're going to move into a time of Advent. We're going to push pause on John for a couple of weeks, for four weeks. Um, two questions I'll, for you to think about. We're going to take communion, and maybe as you begin to prepare your heart for that, one is, uh, Jesus says, does this offend you? And I think about for me, what does Jesus say that offends me? What words of Jesus are stumbling blocks to me? I can think of this kind of on a macro level. These are some things that maybe keep people from ever committing to Jesus or or maybe cause them to keep him at arm's length. Some people, it's the exclusivity of Jesus, the idea that he's the only way to heaven, that the gate is narrow that leads to life and the gate is broad that leads to destruction. And people have a hard time with that. And what do you mean he's the only way? I thought there would be multiple paths to God or all religions ultimately go to the same place. And Jesus says, no, I'm the, not a, I'm the way and truth and life. And for some, that's difficult. And that may be difficult for you to think of Jesus as the only way to the Father. For some people, it's the, the, the demands of Jesus, this idea of taking up our cross daily and following him and that idea of self-denial or that idea of constantly having to, 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 to die to ourself and that can become for some people a stumbling block. That doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound like the path to self-fulfillment and so I'm out. For some people, it's the priority that Jesus demands when he says, you gotta love me more than you love anybody else or anything else and for some, that's, that's a stumbling block, something that keeps them from Jesus. I know most of you, and you've already made a decision to follow him, but I think even as people who follow, and this is who we're talking about in John 6, people who've begun to follow, who are disciples, Jesus can still say things that are difficult for us. And it may not be these big concepts, these big truths. Many of us have gotten our hearts around those to some degree, and we've made a decision to follow Jesus. But sometimes it's the, very, it's the nitty-gritty. It's some specific commands. And I wonder if there are any of those words that you find offensive that are stumbling blocks for you. Is it to turn the other cheek? Is it that you can't serve God in money? Is it that if you ask for anything, you'll receive it? What, 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 are there specific words of Jesus that you, when you read them in the Bible, you just skip over them when you read them? They don't necessarily sit with you right because of your own experience or because of your own understanding and you... Just kind of move past them. My encouragement to you this morning is don't let those things become a stumbling block. Recognize what they are. Recognize this is hard for me. I think if you're willing to take a posture of submission, you can wrestle with God all day long. I think he'll do that with you. He will allow you to question. He'll allow you even to complain. And he will engage with you as long as your fundamental posture is one of submission to him. If you're coming in arrogance, 
If you're coming in pride, that's different. He doesn't engage on that level. If you're coming from a place of humility, God, this one's difficult for me. I get it that you say it, but I don't know why. I get it that you say it, but it doesn't seem right. I get it that you say it, but it doesn't seem consistent with your character. I get it that you say it, but my experience says not so much. I want to believe this to be true, but to be honest, this is a stumbling block for me. It's this makes it difficult for me to follow you. I don't, it's not a deal breaker. I'm not going to be one of these guys in John 6 who turns and walks away. But this word is a hard one for me to honor. I would encourage you to bring that before him. Ignoring doesn't deepen your relationship with God. It doesn't draw you uh, more, it doesn't draw you closer to Jesus, and it doesn't mature you at all. Wrestling does that, and it's okay. And it's okay to wrestle with these things for weeks and months and even years. It's okay. And I think God, again, I think he's, he's in for that. As, as long as your posture is one of humility, is there a word that for you is a bit of a stumbling block? It's difficult for you. You would say, that's a hard word for me to accept. Don't let that cause you to turn away. And I would say, don't ignore it. That's not a, that's kind of a passive disobedience. I would encourage you to engage the Lord. Second question, and it's what Peter says to Jesus, is where are we going to go? Where are we going to go for words of life? You're the only one that's got them. You've got these words of life and nobody else does. We recognize you're the one who God has sent to lead us in this path of life and we're staying committed to you. Where are you tempted to look for words of life? I think some of us look up. And by that, I mean we look to experts. We look to gurus. We look to people with a lot of letters after their name. And we say, help, help me. Help me figure this out. You know more than I do. So tell me something. Some of us look around, whether it's our family, a lot of times it's our friends, maybe it's the trends or what's popular. We, we kind of look around in our peers and say they can, there's, they can tell me the best way forward. And some of us look in. What are the things that I think or the things that I feel? And I think it's important for you and for me to know which one we're most tempted to. So for me, I'm most tempted to look in. I trust myself more than I trust anybody else. And so um, if, if, if there's a place other than Jesus that I'm going to look for words of life, I'm going to look to what I think about something, my understanding, my interpretation, my take. Which one are you most tempted to? It doesn't mean God doesn't speak through those places. He absolutely does. It doesn't mean God can't use those. He absolutely does. It doesn't mean there's not truth in those things. He absol there absolutely can be. I think the question for us is what's ultimate? What trumps? And Peter's saying, you do. I, I don't know that he fully understands what Jesus is saying, but he's saying to him, I, 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 we're not going anywhere else. We recognize that you're the one sent by God, and even if we don't understand everything you're saying, we're sticking with you. The stuff that you're telling us is better than anything else that's out there. And I think that would be maybe the encouragement to us as well to know if you get stuck, things are difficult, if your first inclination is I've got to go 
I got to pick up the latest book on this topic. I got to, or I've got to see what's going, I got to, I'm going to go on social media and see what other people say about this. Or even I've got to kind of dig in and figure out what I think or feel about this. If that's my, if that's my first response, I probably need to be a bit leery of that. If my first response is not, Jesus, what's your input? If it's not, Holy Spirit, would you guide me into the truth of this situation? Whether that's something to do with my health or something to do with my family or something to do with my career or something to do with my future, not just things that we would say are spiritual or moral. The Holy Spirit guides us into all the truth about everything. Is that your go-to or is there someone or something that you go to for words of life, particularly when you're a bit confused or you're struggling? We're going to close this morning with communion, and I would encourage you to take communion from that posture of submission and humility. When I, for me, when I push back against the Lord, normally, if I can get all the way down, it comes down to a lack of trust. I don't trust that he's good. That's it. I just don't trust that he's good. If I trusted him to be good, then I would trust him, period. I would obey. If I trusted in his goodness, then I would be obedient. If I trusted in his goodness, then I would be submitted to him. I never doubt his power. I never doubt his wisdom. I really don't even doubt his love. But there are times where I can doubt his goodness. And I don't know how that plays for you. But if I do trust his goodness, then I'll obey. If he says, turn the other cheek, if I trust that he's good, then I'll turn the other cheek. If I'm not willing to do that, it's because I think it's a bad idea. That's going to be bad for me. You're not going to take care of me. It's going to turn out poorly. Whatever those things happen to be. If I'm going somewhere else looking for words of life, it's because I don't trust that he's good. That he has words. That he has direction. And that the things that he say will ultimately be the best things. And so I want to encourage you this morning as you come forward and take communion to do so from a posture of humility, not beating yourself up or wearing yourself out, but saying, Jesus, I, you're good. And, the, and you prove that by dying for me. And this bread and this juice is a demonstration of your love and of your goodness to me. Paul says, would not the Father who has given us his Son also give us all things? He's, he's trustworthy and he's demonstrated that. He hasn't just said, trust me. He said, trust me and I'm proving myself to be trustworthy by giving you my Son to live and die and be raised again. And so I want to encourage you again this morning to come forward from that posture of humility. God, you're good. Maybe for you, it's God, you love me. Maybe that's the sticking point for you. Maybe it's God, you're trustworthy. Maybe that, I don't know what your sticking point is, but I want to encourage you to submit in that area and allow this communion to be a demonstration to you of God's trustworthiness, of his love, of his goodness, of his desire to be reconciled to you. For some of you, that's a tough one. That God doesn't just love you, he actually likes you and he wants to have an ongoing relationship with you. This is the, ex the extent that he went to to make that possible. 
Can you submit to that truth this morning? We also want to pray for uh, you. You may have uh, a need in your life, and we would love to pray with you about that. One of the things specifically during communion that we pray for is physical healing. Psalm 103 says God forgives us of all of our sins and heals us of all of our diseases, and we don't understand that.